Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 76 of the Live Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And today's guest, the origin uh, behind Luke Carlson, I guess, is back in August last year, um, during the heights of the pandemic, but there's a little kind of a break. My friend Tim Arndt, he's the host of the Inline Empire Fitness Conference in Spokane. He asked me to speak and um, fill in for someone who had to bow out. So I got a presentation ready. Great. But he was also raving about his friend and his, his contact, Luke Carlson, who uh, wowed me when he got up on stage. Uh, Tim certainly really loved your work. And uh, you and I are both returning as presenters this coming year in August to uh, Inland Empire. So anyway, you and I got to, to interacting and uh, a little bit about you. You're the, the founder and CEO of the Minnesota-based uh, Discover Strength a chain of uh, fitness facilities. And uh, you're really highly educated in both the fitness and the business side of things. And, uh, and you were a very sought after and polished public speaker. It was one of the big things about your career. You love that stuff. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Well, it's, it's completely my pleasure, Andrew. I enjoyed getting to meet you uh, in August. And uh, you uh, uh, actually interacted with me during my presentation. And I found out very quickly that you were one of the best read individuals that I'd ever met. And that you were just not, uh, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way to anybody else, but you were not the average fitness professional. And I had known you through social media or known of you, but that interaction at the conference, you were so thoughtful and so well-informed and were so well-read that I just loved getting to know you and excited about continuing our relationship. Well, I appreciate it. And you turned around and invited me to do a, a smaller speaking slot last year at the resistance exercise conference that you host now wasn't able to swing the timing but you extended that invitation again and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that but that's coming up in minneapolis may 13th 14th so i'll be down there speaking and you're one of the keynote speakers along with brad schoenfeld and and dr Stu phillips and there's a few others but we'll circle back because a lot of time i find with this podcast we talk a lot about continuing education that's one big thing and I'm a really big believer that trainers are great at diving into the stuff they're already comfortable with, the things they're already good at. They'll continue to read articles and stuff on technical training that they're already very skilled at. Uh, they're usually pretty good with the nutrition. The ones that are great are great at it. And I feel like the gap is business and marketing. And those are your skill sets. So what will take us... What would take a skilled technical trainer and turn them into a successful fitness leader? Mm, what a great question. I think the very first step is to have a degree of self-awareness or work through an identity crisis as to uh, who am I? What am I trying to be? Do I need to show up as a fitness professional or do I actually need to be a fitness leader? And there's different times in our careers or depending on our trajectory, we're going to make a transition and the transitions that go well from fitness professional to a fitness leader. So that could be a manager, an executive, an owner, an entrepreneur is, are you willing to accept that new role, that new identity and the responsibilities that are associated with it? When it doesn't go well, someone makes the transition. They have the new title, whether or not they're using the title, they have the new title and the responsibilities associated with it, but they're still conducting themselves, they're acting, they're learning, they're surrounding themselves by everything that was their fitness professional life. 
And so I think it's an awareness that, hey, I now have to lead this business, this team, these people, and that has to be a part of my identity. And until you accept that as a part of your identity, I don't think you're going to um, follow up with the appropriate learning, the appropriate peer groups, the appropriate mindset, et cetera. So I think that's where it starts. You just alluded to uh, two books. We'll, we'll do the book thing because I like speaking in book analogies. A lot of people have read The E-Myth Revisited, right? And, and Gina Wickman's Traction, which I only recently just started because it doesn't really speak to me in terms of like some of the stuff I'm doing at my work, but I recently kind of went back to it. Of course, he starts saying some stuff like, oh, he's quoting E-Myth and then he mentions E-Myth. And it's the idea where a lot of entrepreneurs stay very stuck in the, the technician mode. And, I, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember the three things that he, he mentions in the E-Myth, but they're stuck working in the business and they aren't able to delegate, step away and find and train and trust and create systems so that way people can do the technical elements of that job so they can actually embrace the role as a leader to grow the organization. Now, again, this is also a discussion that you know, probably pertains a little bit more to anybody who's looking to grow and scale. You guys might hear my cat, Ozzy. He sees something outside. Grow and scale a business like a physical facility or something online. But how does this also relate to someone who, and you can take this anywhere because this is open fluid conversation, someone who's that solopreneur who is building their, their own brand and brand identity out in the fitness space. It's still totally applicable because we have to have this division of when are we working in the business and when are we working on the business and working in the businesses, we are in revenue generation mode. We're actually with the client. We are working as a fitness professional. And now all of our conversations going to be around fitness professional, but this applies to a dentist. This applies to a physician. This applies to an attorney and accountant. I think the example from E-Myth was the baker baking the bread all day. So that's working in the business. And of course, there is a time and a place for that. And we should maintain our passion and continue to learn in that space. But then we also have to work on the business, which means we remove ourselves and we look down at the business and the business could just be us. But we say, what are the systems that I need to build to make this work more reproducible? What are the marketing tactics that I need to deploy? Let's take even another step back. What's the marketing strategy that I want? Do I have a brand identity that I want to continue to grow? And then am I acting in a way that's consistent with that brand? What are the objectives for the quarter? What are the objectives of the goal for the year? Where's the business actually going? So that's working on the business. And we need a balance of working in and working on. And that's true if it is just us. If it's true if we have a team of a few people. And it's definitely true as we try to scale an organization. And I think the reason we avoid the working on is, well, one, we got to where we are because we're so good at working in. And so we tend to default to the things that got us to where we are, right? These are, this is our sweet spot. These are our strengths. So we naturally feel more comfortable there. So we have to actually consciously push ourselves out of that comfort zone and say, hey, if I'm looking at my work week, if my work week is 40 hours, theoretically, am I now devoting five hours to on versus in? Can I move it to 10 hours on on versus in? And uh, I think that is a conscious decision that, that am I actually uh, time blocking that time? There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. I, I suspect some people struggle with the idea of stepping back and working less hours for fear that, because every trainer, I had this conversation yesterday with a trainer I mentor, we are, live in a perpetual state of worry 
that all of our clients are suddenly going to disappear tomorrow. Like that, that's a, that's a thing. And maybe you're around long enough that you generally get a more confident sense that everything's okay. But for the most part, you get those little freakouts. So how do you get someone to embrace setting a bar or a or a boundary around working a little bit less. I, I certainly a concept that I think uh, works really well would be Jonathan Goodman talks about a freedom number. It's not his exclusively, but I know he's talked about it a lot in his writing. How do you get someone to, to clarify that and act upon yeah. it? Yeah, a brilliant question. And the way I would frame my answer is, it's not necessarily that you are working less. Of course, that's how it feels because we're not actually generating revenue with the client. We are still working as much. We theoretically could even work more. We're just working on completely different things that aren't immediately generating revenue in the short term. But anything that you're working on when you are working on the business versus in the business, my goodness, they better be setting you up for more efficient revenue production down the road. So that has to be the constant reminder that, yeah, I'm spending five hours. I'm spending 10 hours where I'm not in front of a client that I'm not actually generating revenue but I am positioning myself to be a more effective generating a revenue generator in the future. And that could be something as simple and as, as obvious as how we market, right? The, the couple of hours I'm spending on these marketing activities are absolutely going to pay for themselves many times over when it comes to the revenue generation that is so incredibly important. So I think it's the on versus in doesn't mean it's less. It's just working on the right things. I know from my personal experience, there's a lot of things that ultimately become working on the business. This podcast is an element of working on the business. Any article I write for any of the publications is on the business. Social media is on the business. And over the last few years with some of the bigger media vehicles, but even something as simple as engaging with Facebook for many years, that has done two things. One is it's developed a brand. And I want to come back around to your thoughts on branding. And two, it has driven top of mind awareness that has ultimately led to a lot of people coming and asking me to, to train with me. So it sort of created this enduring pipeline. Can't always predict when you'll get an inquiry, but, and one pops up and it tends to take care of the working in the business because how many people get stuck in the scramble mode where they're struggling to look for clients isn't working on the business just proactively creating that pipeline. So thoughts there, and I'll let you go further with a, sort of a second question. I know two-part question. Um, what are your thoughts on the importance of embracing a brand as a fitness professional? Yeah, so your first question, you know, I, I like everything that you said on working on versus working in, and it's basically being proactive. And I think it's important to note, and you alluded to this, that you're not always going to be time matched or you're not going to have this linear growth that I worked on the business for five hours. Therefore, the results should come very quickly in terms of my working in the business revenue production. But it's the idea of you're planting seeds all the time and you actually don't know when you're going to go to harvest. You don't know when you're going to reap everything that you're sowing. Um, it might be three days from now. It might be a month from now. It might be three years from now. And the mentality there has to be long game. We are playing the long game. And that's so hard to do to say, I'm going to take these two to three hours 
and set them aside to do something where I don't know when the return is going to uh, going to manifest. It might be down the road. And Andrew, you stand out as a fitness professional who's done a wonderful job of playing the long game and saying, I'm going to, on a consistent basis, invest in this. It doesn't have to be the same for everyone. I don't think everyone listening can be Andrew Coates. I don't think they can have and build your same social media presence, but there's a lot of different ways to do it. So my working on the business might look a little bit different than yours, but the thing we have in common is we have consistently committed to that over the long haul. It's not, hey, if Andrew feels like it today, he's going to do it. You just you just seem to wake up and do it regardless. And then you're reaping those benefits um, you know, for years to come. And so I think that's the first message is if you're new to it, don't necessarily expect a return really quickly. Now, I hate that because I think you should measure anything that you're doing. And so if we're going to be engaged in this activity and this time and this work, I want to be able to track and measure the productivity. And the reality is that that productivity, that revenue generating capacity or capability might lag, um, you know, weeks, Years, but I still think it's time. And we can still A and B test the things that we're doing, right? We can change the working on the business over time and have it evolve and, and seek out different best practices. We don't have to say, well, my head is just going to be in the sand and I'm going to keep doing this even though it's not fruitful. We can continue to pilot or rifle shot new ideas and new ways of, of how we're actually working on the business. But it all starts again with the identity that if the business is going to grow a little bit, you have to build more structure. You have to build more systems. You have to be responsible for the marketing. And I think all of that starts with, well, what are you trying to build? Is it, is it going to be you? And I think that's awesome. The solopreneur is an awesome life. Are you trying to bring somebody else on board? I interact with so many studio operators that have one to four personal trainers that report up to them and they get so stuck because they were a brilliant personal trainer for so many years. And now they're taking clients off their plates and moving them to these new trainers, but they realize they haven't systemized what they do. So that particular personal trainer has to say, why do clients love working with me? What's my unique approach to exercise, to customer experience, all of it that I want to package and then be able to teach and systematize to the rest of my team. Now, your team is not going to be robots. They're not going to be exactly like you, but we have to have similar elements. Now, when I, when I say that, I'm referring to a business that's not renting space. Now, renting space, is, 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 uh, it, it works. I'm talking about really building a brand, right? The idea that we can go into a McDonald's, I don't care if we're in Tokyo or if we're in somewhere in Canada or if we're in Minneapolis, my home, and a Big Mac is a Big Mac is a Big Mac, regardless of working there. Now, I don't think we take away the artistic element of the personal trainer, the trainer's true brilliance, but we need to have some systems to say, how could we make this experience consistent for the clients that are coming in? And that gets down to how we clean a facility, how we greet a client, how we actually program exercise. In our businesses, we have shared client models. So any trainer can work with any client, which means we need to use the same language, right? Well, are we using the terminology split squat? Are we using the terminology a single leg lunge? It really doesn't matter, but we need to be on the same page. We need to have the same teaching cues across the board so we know um, uh, that I can work with the client that you normally work with and the client can still have a great experience. So... That's kind of the answer, my long-winded answer to your first question. The second question is such a fascinating question. This is actually what my presentation 
at our conference coming up in May is going to be is I'm going to do a deep dive on, on brand. I think brand is this word that everybody uses and it means almost whatever you want it to mean in the moment. Sometimes brand means your whole business. People say, I love that brand. They really built a great brand. Sometimes brand to some people means just the the visual elements that you see, meaning I like the logo and I like the typeface that they're using. Sometimes brand more broadly defined is everything the customer feels or experiences. And the key word here is the emotions that are listed, uh, elicited when they interact with your company. Um, so I think my, my approach to brand is it starts on the inside. It's whoever you are as the entrepreneur, as the business owner, as the practitioner. And when you're doing it so much internally that the customer starts to feel it externally and that's what they experience. There's no gap. There's no difference between what you're doing internally, how you think, how you talk, what you prioritize, what your values are and what the customer experiences externally. Now that may sound like we're talking about bigger businesses, but I think it applies to one single individual also is what you say and what you do, do they totally align? And we have to be very intentional about that, that what we're telling our customers in our marketing and our social media and all of our messages, all of our promises, is that what we're actually delivering? Is that how we're conducting ourselves internally? Is that the experience that we're actually providing? We can't have this say-do gap. We say this and then we do this. And that's not just from a marketing standpoint around promises around results. I mean, it's uh, what we say we are, what we say they can expect as an experience. Um, what's the value proposition? Are we delivering that value proposition on a regular basis? I am not here to say what that value proposition should be, but um, you have to deliver on what you say. One of ours is we're going to make a promise that our exercise is going to be safe, which means you cannot get injured when you're working out with us. Um, I'm not disparaging anybody, but there's other fitness concepts out there where I don't think safety is a top priority. And frankly, that's not me, but I think that's okay if that's part of the value prop is, hey, you might get injured while you do this. It's actually a badge of honor if you get injured. That's not a part of our brand. Our brand is going to be everything you do is going to be safe. You can get injured in your sport and in your recreation. You shouldn't get injured in your exercise. That's our philosophy. So therefore, how we program, how we teach exercise, how we instruct the exercise all has to be aligned with that. That's one of an infinite number of kind of brand decisions that we have to make sure that we have congruence between what we say and what we actually do. Well, and that, that creates, you're taking up a certain real estate. And I love the concept of real estate within the fitness community, both uh, on social media branding and, and in this and you're alluding to, and, and I'll comfortably say it, we've got disciplines out there like CrossFit, which have a reputation. Now, I'm pro-CrossFit in the sense that I think it gets people in gyms and barbells in hands. I, I really do believe that. And despite its reputation and people like making fun of it, quite frankly, powerlifting is probably just as injurious in terms of its track record. And it doesn't matter. You're going to get great CrossFit coaches actually do wonderful things. Uh, I just had my friend Jason Brown on recently, and he comes from that CrossFit world. And, you know, he's a big conjugate method guy. And his programming, really, really smart, thoughtful programming that broke away from some of the, the more, here, here's the core CrossFit philosophy. But you're going to get personal trainers who are very, very qualified, very skilled, and you're going to get personal trainers that just don't have those, those skills. You're going to get good doctors and bad, good lawyers and bad that exists everywhere. But the idea that, you know, that, Hey, go until you puke hardcore, just like don't quit until you're like in a puddle on the floor. That is 
real estate. That is something that CrossFit as a brand does and it attracts a certain type of person. You're not trying to attract the same client as what CrossFit is or the powerlifting world. You're trying to, and you, you're establishing this space in real estate. I like using the example of real estate with nutrition online. So we have macro counting and flexible dieting and that sort of stuff. We have veganism. We have um, keto dieting, which is really rebranded Atkins, right? And along the way, certain people have intermittent fasting. There's a whole bunch of people that branded themselves, grabbed the real estate of intermittent fasting several years ago. And so a lot of these pieces of real estate are now owned by someone or they're red ocean. They're kind of, you know, bloody. Uh, there's a lot of competition. So we're noticing that things are getting more extreme. I don't know if you've heard of the snake diet guy, right? He's taken fasting to extremes. He's actually a local Edmonton guy. I've met him. He's a strange little creature. Um, and then what do we get? We now have, and my perfect example of this is the liver king. Okay. So carnivore is more extreme real estate because it's not as attractive real estate as what keto was, but okay. Hardcore people, they flock to it. So now we're getting into the farther reaches of the outer city. That's a, a greater commute, but the liver king has branded himself around this obscure piece of real estate and well, turn himself into this extreme thing. So there are all, all, there are better pieces of real estate available sometimes and you've grabbed onto one. And sometimes it's the unsexy piece of real estate. That's actually the, the effective place to brand around. Yeah, and sometimes it's, and uh, I, I would say most of the time, the smaller piece of real estate never looks as desirable, but it's much more lucrative. And so we, fitness professionals and, and entrepreneurs of all kinds make the mistake of entering what you said is a red ocean. There's competition there, but the real estate looks so large. It looks like there's such a huge market there that we enter it. But if you're number 29 in that, that red ocean, the consumer, you just don't resonate with them. Where if you have a smaller piece of real estate, uh, stated otherwise, if you're in more of a niche category, you can own that category. You rather be number one in a smaller category and own the entire category. Um, and that's how we've always built our business. And I think that's how most great businesses are built. We mistakenly think when we think about businesses, we daydream about Apples and Amazons and Googles. And let's just toss those out. Let's think about all of our businesses. I think we really should think about what's the narrow niche that I could own. And I think um, I heard Todd Durkin say many years ago, the, the nicher, the richer. And, and that's true. And my experience is the more niche you get, uh, the faster you grow, the larger you can actually grow. But every entrepreneur I meet avoids that because they think, well, there's not as much potential there. There's not as many people there. The market's smaller, but you rather own that entire market. So I totally agree with your concept and your analogy of, of real estate. And the real estate can be the modality, the approach, right? You used a nutrition example. So the approach it could also be target market, right? It could be a, co a combination of those two. So you could have a, a different niche in the same um, keto red ocean, but say, hey, it's keto for um, uh, uh, ultra marathon runners. Okay, that's a niche, right? Um, and we're very yeah, into <laughs> Say that again? I said a bloody terrible one, but yeah, you're right. Yes, <laughs> yes. But let me tell you, if you're an ultra marathon runner, and you have people that are talking to you about keto and you decide to do it and you start Googling that, there's going to be one name that comes up and that's going to be your brand. And so you can be number one and own that space. 
when I first got started, um, when I left kind of strength and conditioning in American football, um, I had a, an incredible niche in strength training for long distance runners. I mean, marathon runners at that time were just not strength training. And when you rent a, a runner's world or running times, um, the few articles that I wrote, I always came up. And I worked with a few Olympians and they referred people and the normal people I worked with referred people. And I was considered like the guy in strength training for marathon runners. Now, why is that? Well, nobody really had that space. And previously I had worked in the NFL where, you know, there's a heck of a lot of guys doing strength training, strength and conditioning for American football, right? That, I mean, everybody wanted to be in that. But no one was talking about strength training for long distance runners. Now, that's evolved a little bit today. Most of the long distance runners um, in the U.S. anyways, they're pretty hardcore about their strength training. So we've seen a great shift there over the last 15 to 18 years. But just another example of you don't just have to niche the modality. You could also niche the target market um, or a combination of those two. Now I'll give another a couple of examples real quick. And, and you mentioned uh, strength and conditioning in, in football. I just had Brett Bartholomew on and that's a world he came out of, right? He's big in there. Uh, so niche in strength and conditioning, Joel Jameson is also a semi-recent guest. Joel really owns conditioning, especially for MMA fighters, right? And he's based out of Seattle. So he's a really good example of what you just described. Um, so many thoughts here, but let's Let's actually go on to something that I wanted to talk about, which was the resistance exercise conference, which is coming up now in Minneapolis. I said May 13th and 14th. What do you have in store for the attendees and what, what do we get to look forward to? Yeah, thanks for asking. Thanks for letting us talk about this. Um, this is the 11th year that we've done the conference. So we did it last year in Las Vegas. This year it's back in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is my home. So we like to generally do it in Minneapolis. It's at the JW Marriott that's attached to the Mall of America. So we do it because, hey, a lot of times an attendee wants to bring a spouse, bring a significant other, and Mall of America is like top three biggest malls in the world. And so if you didn't want to attend the conference and you could just hang out over the weekend at the mall, it has a full indoor theme park. It has all of the things, okay? So let's just put that aside. We're at the JW Marriott and we try to bring in a group of speakers to talk all things resistance training. So we don't generally get outside of just strength training. So our keynotes this year are Brad Schoenfeld, who keynoted for us last year. And, and when we got done, he said, uh, hey, I'm coming back next year. So I think he's one of the first speakers I had that invited himself back next year to speak. And so Brad's reputation kind of precedes him. I would say my favorite strength training researcher and truly one of my greatest colleagues and friends is Dr. James Fisher. So published over 100 peer-reviewed papers on all things strength and hypertrophy, has co-authored a lot of work with with Brad over the years. He's at Southampton University in the UK. So he's another keynote. He's always our audience favorite. His colleague, Dr. James Steele, who they've collaborated on so many papers. Um, James Steele is the single brilliant, most brilliant uh, academic that I've ever met. He is uh, a young guy who is absolutely um, brilliant when it comes to, to statistics and clearly exercise. So we're thrilled to have Dr. James Steele. Now he and Fisher have partnered on so much research together, but Steele has worked with, with Brad on so many papers as well. And then from Canada, from McMaster University, we have Stu Phillips. I think Stu is the most well-known academic exercise physiologist in the world. His reputation precedes him. He's gonna talk about all things protein and how protein 
and strength training can be combined and what are the upper ends of, of hypertrophy. Um, and then the other keynote that we have is a little bit different for us. It's, uh, I'm going to always butcher her last name. She's the author of Good to Go, Christy Ashwanden. I'm going to say that wrong. Um, I read her book in January of last year. The book is all about recovery modalities. Now, she is not an exercise scientist. She's a science writer, writes for the New York Times. Like I said, that book was a bestseller. She is... Um, and the book that she wrote is a fantastic book. She's collaborated with, I think, every keynote that I said there, because in all of her work, she's always interviewing academics. And so she's going to give a keynote on recovery. I just love her and I've loved getting to know her over the last year. Um, and then I'll do the one talk that's not on exercise. I'm going to give a talk about a brand. That's kind of what our, our keynotes look like. And then one of the highlights of the conference is those keynotes to a roundtable at the end. So I love that James Fisher views the world differently than Brad Schoenfeld and Stu has a different angle and James Steele has a different angle. And we're going to get them together and ask the tough questions and have them debate and have the interchange. And I think that's so incredibly healthy. You know, the last 20 years of being in this profession, there's so many factions. There's people that fight and argue about things. And sometimes social media makes that better. Sometimes it makes it so much worse. And I love having people live actually having those discussions. And you can see academics who respect each other, but also disagree and are going to use the evidence to support those disagreements combined with their practical experience. That's always a rich conversation. So we end with that roundtable discussion. Now, we also have a series of our version of TED Talks. And so it's a 15-minute presentation on one really hyper-focused topic. And that's what you're going to do. I heard you speak. Um, when we were in Washington last August, and I thought this isn't a message that our audience needs to hear. So you're going to give a presentation on, hey, what do we do from a social media standpoint? What are the lies that we're telling ourselves around how to utilize social media? And Andrew, I have to be honest, I'm so excited to have you speak at this because you are outside of the world of so many of our attendees. And I just think they're going to love you. I've had attendees reach out to me and say, I've followed that guy on Instagram for so long. I can't wait to actually meet him. But you're out of our kind of normal ecosystem of, of speakers and attendees. So we're thrilled to have you. We have uh, a, a, a bodybuilder, figure competitor, former attorney, and I think 14-year client of ours. Uh, is going to speak on uh, creatine. She's going to do a 15-minute talk on creatine. Uh, we have uh, Jeff Tomazeki, who runs a wonderful business in Ohio, talking a little bit about leadership and his personal training business, one of the biggest personal training businesses in the country. Um, we have Dr. Sean Pruis, who's going to give a talk on how do we take the non-exerciser and make them a more consistent exerciser. And his whole background is solely in strength training. So he's going to talk about it from a strength training standpoint. So let's be clear, Andrew, I like exercise in general. The conference is very much about strength training, resistance exercise. That's all we're really going to talk about. And then we'll do a roundtable on uh, business operators. So if you operate a studio, a gym of any kind, we have a group of studio and gym operators that will get together. One of those is one of my franchisees. One of them is someone that owns an incredible studio in LA. One of them is the president of a company called The Perfect Workout. They have over 60 locations across the country. They're about as big as they get in a studio, strength training studio format. So we love to get the operators together and just talk about what's working, what's not working, and how we market our businesses, how we attract prospects, how we work with our clients. 
So that round table is always a highlight as well. And then I think one of the, the key elements of the conference is we've tried to make the conference as much as possible, a gathering as much as it is a conference. So Saturday night is a dinner and an award ceremony. And let me tell you, every year there's tears at that, that award ceremony and at that dinner, there's collegiality, there's relationships that are developed that will stay intact for the next 20 years. We always said our audience is actually more impressive and more valuable than our keynote speakers. So I get enamored by our keynotes. The conference is not about our keynotes, it's about everybody in the audience and during the breaks and during the breakouts and during lunch and during our social Friday night over a drink and Saturday at the dinner and at the party afterwards, we do a huge party afterwards. I think that's what keeps people coming back is they get the appropriate amount of learning. They get the appropriate amount of collegiality. Um, they're creating relationships with people that they can leverage for their business and other ways down the road. So to me, it is my favorite weekend out of the year. And I say that from a position of bias because I put it on. But anybody that wants, anyone's listening that wants to take over the conference and put it on, I will gladly come to it and pay full price instead of put it on. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of the focus. It's a gathering of that pride themselves on using an evidence-based approach. That's probably an overused term, but we still use it. An evidence-based approach to guide our strength training. That's the focus of the weekend. Ooh, you said a lot in there that I would definitely want to piggyback upon. Nothing has done more for my career than attending events like this. I went to the Fitness Summit in Kansas City in 2017. Changed my life, changed my career. Opened my eyes to possibility, inspired me. I met a lot of insider who's who in the industry. I went back in 2018 and in 2017, one of the people I met was Tim Art. And Tim and I became friends. You know, you get people on social media. I agree with you. I think the I think the most important thing about Andy's events is to take the time to get to know the people around you, the people on the same journey that you are. You never know where some of those people are going to end up, but it's not about buying into junk bonds and hoping to cash in and, and profiteer off someone else. It, it's not about what you can get from it. I love supporting and sharing other people. But a lot of people, that event in 2017, so this year I'm speaking at two events hosted by people I met at that one event in 2017. Again, Tim Arndt. And I'm doing a, a local NSA provincial clinic. My friend Jeff Aker, who happens to be from Calgary, I met him in Kansas City. And that wasn't a plan. I didn't even imagine this sort of thing. I would be speaking at these type of events. And then, of course, I met you last year at Inland Empire. The, I, I, I make a point of going to as many of these events as I possibly can. And I'm coming in from Edmonton now, right? So I love this stuff. So anybody listening, if you are looking for some stuff to do, because we lost a lot of it the last two years. So take a good look at Resistance, resistance Exercise Conference. Uh, if that doesn't work for you, come join us in Spokane. I'm trying to remember, it's, it's August. I feel like it's, a, it's, I know it's the middle of August. I know I'll splash all over my social media, Tim's event. That one's a really nice VIP, kind of smaller, intimate event. It'll have a great speaking lineup. Um, I wanted to point out something too. And every once in a while, a guest comes on and does something that you do very well. And I always like to point it to the listeners. Luke has a way of reflecting this back on me, making it about me. And whether you go back to the original book on this stuff, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? I mean, it's, it's classic wisdom, but sometimes I have guests who really do this quite masterfully. And it's one of the reasons why you clearly are in the position you're in, in the fitness industry and beyond, because of just the way that you would make someone feel. 
And I really like pointing this out because this will go a long way with a client that's in front of you, anything that you do. Um, I have definitely interacted with a few people where it was really all about them. You know, you could really strong vein of egocentrism when you, I'm genuinely interested in the other person. I'm genuinely interested in meeting people in my travels and I love sharing great people on my media. And that in turn, it is not a calculated pragmatic. What can I get out of this decision? It is fulfilling in of itself to see other people do well, but it is given back tenfold in a way that I cannot, you know, measure. So I like pointing that out. It is a very, very positive charismatic quality. So, uh, you know, Hey, so I'm reflecting this back on you and what I hope everybody listening does, because you, we talk about social media and brand, you don't necessarily have a large Instagram following. That's not a space that you're necessarily operating and you have other networks and there's different kinds of followings and brand, but nonetheless, I want people to plug into what you're doing. We'll, we'll remind people where to find you after, but let's, let's go into let me interrupt and ask you one quick thing, Andrew, about that. How many Instagram followers do you have? Uh, 42,500. Okay. So I was on a podcast yesterday. It's based in Ireland and we were promoting the conference and I was talking about you and I was talking about a number of our attendees said, Oh my gosh, you have Andrew, this is going to be exciting. And we were talking about uh, how big of a deal you were in the Instagram world. And uh, I was on with my marketing VP. We were doing the podcast together and she said that you were at 25,000. I think I said that you were at 50,000 and we agreed that you were just sub Kardashian level in terms of Instagram followers. And so that is such an incredible part of your, um, your reputation. And I think you've obviously done that so masterfully. So I just wanted to interject and, and say that. And Andrew, I got to be honest, um, when I scroll through Instagram, 95% of what you post adds value. I mean, I, put, I scroll through all the time and I'm like, and you're going to disagree with me on this part. The only other person that has the success rate that you have on their Instagram posts is Adam Grant. And I don't think you like Adam Grant as much as I do, but sometimes he posts something. So, so you don't like that comparison. You're more muscular than Adam Grant, but sometimes he posts something. I'm thinking you are spot on with that, Andrew. And, and, uh, or he, he posts something. I think Adam, that's brilliant. And Andrew, you are, I mean, 95 out of hundred, I think he just stated that so succinctly and so perfectly. And Every faction of our industry and practitioners need to hear it. It's not just one niche. I mean, I operate in a pretty small niche in terms of how people think about strength training and do strength training. Your content, and I've talked to so many people about your content, it applies to almost however you're approaching strength training and programming and so forth. So I want to commend you for, for that. I heard a quote, and then I'll stop talking, um, Jim Collins uh, was told this when he was young. And I'm trying to think who told him this. It may have been Peter Drucker told Jim Collins. And I've told it to a few of my close colleagues or friends or even direct reports. And you said this, this is just how it was worded to Jim Collins. Someone told Jim, they said, hey, Jim, I think you need to be less focused on being interesting and more focused on being interested. So take an interest in whoever you're talking to rather than trying to always be so interesting. And so I heard that a long time ago and I thought my, my hallmark is going to be, I'm not interesting, but I'm going to be interested in who's speaking, who's teaching, what I'm reading, et cetera. Well, let's straight Dale Carty again. So uh, you, you give me a couple things to jump on. So let's, let's touch on Grant first. Grant's social media posts are sensational. They're fantastic. They're succinct. <laughs> 
I have a bias, we talked about this, where I've come to realize that if I'm reading something, I like philosophical takeaways, actionable takeaways. And I've realized that there are a handful of authors, Grant is one of them. Malcolm Gladwell is the best example. And anybody who reads Gladwell's books can kind of go, he's a great storyteller. He's a fantastic writer, fantastic storyteller. Mark Manson, great storyteller. But they're really books of stories versus necessarily things that are going to, what I believe is influence or shift your mental models, your attitudes. I like things like the Almanac of Naval Ravi Kent. I like Seth Godin stuff. I find Seth great storyteller, but there's a lot of really philosophical stuff that resonates with me. And I enjoyed reading Adam Grant's originals. Right? I thought, give and take, I went back and did it uh, later on, wasn't wowed. And I was disappointed with Think Again. And I know some people really like that book. I was disappointed with it because I didn't think it really blew the doors off anything. And it's my bias, but sometimes I feel like writers get in the space and they're writing books just to publish a book. Does that make sense? But, oh, that, that makes so much sense. I've never put Adam Grant in that, that category. I could name five other authors where I know the publisher is saying, okay, we came out with this book. It had this degree of success. We have to do another book. And so the author's first book is usually a great book. By book four or five, they have run out of ideas. So the one thing I respect out of an author is they don't write a book until they can't not write the book. They're so compelled to share the idea, to share the model that they have to write it rather than, hey, every 18 to 24 months, you know, there's a new book coming out because the publisher is providing pressure. I, I interrupted you there, but I'm on the same page. Well, but I think it's a phenomenon because how many times have we listened to a band we love and that first album is holy sweet shit amazing. Like there's nothing in Pearl Jam's library that will touch 10. There, there isn't, right? And you know, versus was pretty good. And Vitalogy went off in this weird direction. I mean, yeah, okay, they're, they're a great legacy band, but I think I've really enjoyed maybe two or three songs since Versus. And I can't count the number of bands that I like, but as they went on, it's just like, I feel like they're kind of bankrupt of ideas. I also have a theory, and I'm going off on a tangent, where you get bands that they're coming from struggle and the tough days, and there's a lot of emotion and it channels into the music. But once the life of a rock star gets easy, and they have a little bit more money, then maybe there's not as much trauma or pain to feed off of. But side tangent. Um, no, I actually, I, I respect the hell out of Grant. There are, I'm trying to think. I also feel like a lot of books, and this is just books in the industry, probably could be an essay, something very, very short, but obviously they need to fill a book. Uh, the best example that I can think of is uh, David Epstein's book, Range. That is something you can summarize, you know, in, in an essay. And I found that was the most drawn out book out of everything. Great concept. Loved it. But way too bloody long. And totally agree. I, I, I enjoy the experience of reading books, right? Not everybody's the same. I enjoy it. I enjoy the stories. You're reinforcing things. But that book for me, I'm like, okay, way too bloody much. Now, let's go back to the following point. There is an attitude within our industry that developing a following is somehow a bad thing. It's a vanity metric. It's, it's classic sour, sour grapes, it's classic Aesop fable. But let's, let's shift that a little bit. We all say we wanna help more people. We wanna reach more people. What is following but reaching more people? If your message is resonating with a larger audience, that's a good thing. It's challenging to do. 
And I think there's a couple of components to it. And I, I've done presentations on this and I love talking about this. And I'll sort of two things. One is you have to practice the craft of creating something that's resonant and that people share. If people share it, it gets in front of more people, then you're more likely to develop followers and engage with you. And then two, and I believe this is a big one. You've got to have some brand capital that backs it up. So I, I like to make a little bit of fun of, and I don't like tearing anybody down, but I like making fun of, there's a new trend amongst the TikTok ecosystem where TikTok followings scale very rapidly and aggressively. And I think it's something people should embrace. I think there's a lot of potential. There's real estate available there. But then they go back into Instagram and they put the size of their TikTok following in their Instagram bio. Because that is the single most significant thing about what they've done with their career. <laughs> and when you put it that way, you're kind of like, oh, so you know what? Tell me who you've written for. And if you haven't written for someone, guess what? Let, let, work on your writing, write for your website, okay? I'm doing a presentation at the NSCA Provincial thing on writing and getting published. That, that's coming up. Um, do you have a podcast? Do you have a YouTube channel? Do you own a business? Are you the owner of a physical gym facility? Let me see what's substantial about your career, what you've done. What, who do you coach? What do you do? You know, the size of your TikTok following does not impress me, right? Now, if someone has the skill of having developed that following without putting in their Instagram bio, I'm going to say, okay, that person is doing something great. I'll use a guy named Eric Roberts, who's going to be a guest in the near future. He's a mentee of Jordan Syatt, whose media is phenomenal. And, you know, he, he was Gary Vaynerchuk's trainer. So he's picked up a few things from Gary and Eric's Instagram following has exploded. Like the fastest growing Instagram following I've seen recently, just blew right the hell up, doing really good on reels. And then, but his TikTok is huge. He's been really on TikTok. And I think if he, I swear he has like a million followers on TikTok, but he doesn't put that in his Instagram bio <laughs> uh, or my pal, Beth Farako. I've been talking to her recently and same thing. She's seen an explosion in her TikTok and it has changed her career. She's had to hire business people and develop systems like we were talking earlier. And she, they, they both backfilled it to where they're funneling some of the TikTok followers into Instagram and they're seeing their Instagram growing. So I really am a big believer that there's something very beneficial if you choose to embrace social media growth. It's challenging, which makes a lot of people kind of poo-poo it. And then we also get the quote influencer types who are buying followers and doing a lot of the stupid shit who, you know, every once in a while you see someone, oh, hundred thousand followers, but they're getting a hundred likes on their posts. And they're mostly just posting, you know, softcore porn pictures and no one's sharing that. And so I'm like, where are these followers coming from? And you go, oh, most of them are fake. They're not real anymore. Or maybe they built the following back in 2016, back when Instagram was a very different animal and otherwise their engagement's dead now. But Either way, it's, it's individual to each person and what they can get out of it. And for me, it's done a lot of wonderful things. And I do believe that one of the reasons why I'm getting these invitations to speak at events and, and some of the more bigger writing opportunities is because I also have, I have an established following, right? And it's growing all the time. Uh, and it's the behavior backing it as well. But anyway, that's that. We are almost out of time. So let's tell people where they can find you online on your media. Yeah, so if they want to follow my, join my small Instagram following, it's uh, Luke Carlson 3070. Um, uh, that's where I'm on Instagram. And what we're talking about today, or what we touched on today, 
our conference, of course, is on all social media platforms. That's Resistance Exercise Conference. So it's REC, Resistance Exercise Conference. Uh, that's on Instagram. And then, of course, if they want to look at our business, our business is Discover Strength. So we're a chain of boutique fitness studios that all we do is strength training. Um, we've done it for 16 years. From what I understand, we do more strength training, personal training workouts than any business of our kind in, in North America. So we have been around for a long time and we work with thousands of clients and do thousands of workouts in a given week. So that's Discover Strength on any social media platform. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. I can't wait to catch up with you. I guess I'll see you in what? Oh God, we're talking. I'm trying to think of the date here. We're talking five weeks, right? So I got to make sure. It's coming up fast. We can't wait to host you. We can't wait to treat you like a king, Andrew. So thank you for letting me join you today and keep up the great work that you're doing. All right. And everybody listening, if it does pique your interest and you know what, I, I don't care if you're flying in from Florida or Nicaragua or I, you know what? I keep forgetting to do this. I've got listeners in Macedonia and whoever is in Macedonia, I want you to message me on social media and say hi, because this podcast rate ranks extremely high in Macedonia on fitness. And I'm just like, that's super cool. But anyway, if, if it's feasible and it excites you, especially if you're in the area and it's not even that far away, I'd, I'd love to hang out with you there. Okay. So old friends are new, please. Um, Luke, real pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And uh, for everybody listening, if by chance you're finding me through Luke's media first, then take a walk through my recent podcast guests. I recently had Brett Bartholomew, who's another really polished speaker in the, in the fitness space and from a strength and conditioning background, uh, really sought after. So go listen to that one. And if you like who you see in my list of presenters uh, or list of speakers, most of whom are industry presenters, then uh, maybe you'll stick around and subscribe and listen to more. So thanks everyone. And thank you, Luke.